Our text this morning is Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And uh, you can find it in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, it's page 876. We talked last week. In case you think that sometimes I just, you know, handpick, cherry-pick my own little things... We're just working our way through the text, just to remind you, uh, you know, this is not my thing. Again, we're going to talk about sin and hell and Jesus and money and, you know, all those things that aren't relevant, as you may assume. No, this is very relevant and it's not my thing. This is where we are as God has inspired the writers of the text. It's Luke 16. We talked about earlier in Luke 16 about uh, the parable of the shrewd uh, manager. He was dishonest. Uh, he was, a, he was a, a manager of a wealthy man's estate and business, and when he realized that he was about to be audited, uh, he started to get things, uh, you know, the gears were, were, were churning, right? Okay. I need to make some friends, and I need to make some provisions, and I need to be active, and, uh, and I need to, uh, you know, I need to, to, to tend to some things that uh, I have been neglecting, and he's a man of action, and he is commended. Jesus doesn't commend, of course, his and he doesn't commend his integrity because he lacks that. He commends the man's ingenuity. And uh, he's, he does speak well of how he handled it because he's not passive. The man did change his ways. He took up action. He tried to make preparations. And there was a phrase earlier in uh, Luke 16 verse 8 that Jesus in the middle of that parable says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So in other words, uh, even worldly people who aren't informed of, you know, that aren't part of God's chosen people, Israel, they are people who understand how to prepare. They know how to live now in light of future challenges, future circumstances, future goals, right? They know how to do that. That's common sense. But he's saying as much as they live according to the principles of this world in their way, you're not living according to the principles Jesus is saying of my way. And so you need to be prepared. It would be wise of anyone, we would say, to make preparation, to live in light of what is maybe just around the corner. It would be wise, we would think, to live in, in, in light of, uh, it would be shrewd to prepare for retirement. But it would be most wise, it would be most commendable as wise to live in light of what and who is above creation and also what is beyond life after death. Let me say that again. It would be most wise for us to live in light of who he, our creator, who is above creation and what is beyond this life. There's a word of warning and caution that Jesus gave at the close of that parable. I'll read it again. It's verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he closes with this. You cannot, this includes everyone who's ever lived, you cannot serve God and money. And what we're going to read next, now you're going to be thinking, how is this related? How are these interconnected? This seems a little bit disjointed. But if you just give me some time, hopefully I can Illustrate Certainly what's illustrated in the, the parable of the rich man in hell, which is what we're going to take up in part, is a picture, is a window, an illustration into the principles that Jesus has been cautioning about earlier in the chapter. So I think beautifully this all does work together. Let me ask you to stand again and let's read together God's word. 
Follow with me, if you would, beginning verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that is Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Verse 18, excuse me, 19. There was a man, a rich man, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who, was despised, who, was, who desired to be fed with, the, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man who died was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to just dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may be warned, that he may warn them, lest also they may come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophet. Let them hear them. And he said, No, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise. From the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to Him. You may be seated. Let's pray, please. Lord, you've told us, you've promised that you will not have your word return void. And so we pray that it would accomplish it. Lord Jesus, we know that you uniquely have the words of life. I don't have them. Jesus, you have and you can and you will change us even through your word. So work, please. By the power of your spirit, for these purposes, we pray in his name, the King of Kings, we sang about Jesus. Amen. I had a chance uh, Friday night to speak to uh, a graduating class. It was a a classical homeschool co-op, and uh, there were a a number of families there. You know, it's, it's always an indication that you're crummy at telling jokes if you tell people that was a joke, right? And it happened to me. I said, you know, many a graduation speech is warned of materialism and the pursuit of wealth, you young uh, graduates. Uh, and, the, you know, inevitably people will say money can't buy you happiness, but it sure can rent it. <laughs> and that entire crowd looked at me like this. And I had to say, that was a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. I don't have any jokes this morning. But Jesus is talking about money. And the problem with money 
Because you're going to hear the word, you hear the word Pharisee and you go, oh, that's bad. And then you hear the word rich and you're like, oh, that's bad too. Which too bad because we're all in that, camp, in that camp. Not Pharisees, hopefully, but we're definitely rich. In the grand scheme of all things uh, globally and historically, we are people with tremendous uh, wealth and resources. The important matter isn't whether you are wealthy. The important matter is the handling of money. We discussed that last week. That's why we said it's so important to have the sweet and precious thing, which isn't a large bank account, but contentment. We talked about that last week because wealth can be a very dangerous thing. It can be a tremendous tool. It can be a horrible master because you can't serve God and money, as Jesus said just before this parable in this portion of his word. Wealth can be dangerous. We can make huge mistakes. With money, we can make false assumptions. The Pharisees certainly have this. And some of the disciples who Jesus is also speaking to are tempted and can be confused. The deep and central problem is the handling of the gifts that God gives us. We, do, we group those together, right? We talk about time and our talents and our treasures. And we are managers. He's the giver. He's the owner. We're, we are the stewards and the managers of those things. It illustrates oftentimes, though, how we handle our money. It illustrates what we worship. It illustrates what's going on in our hearts, which is the seat of our being. We're not talking anatomical. We're talking the spiritual seat of our being as humans and what motivates us in our heart. The psalmist writes the prayer of Moses, Psalm 90, verse 12. And I know young people, you're here with us today, uh, and I'm glad you are. But I want to remind you that uh, life can be brief, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Psalm 90, verse 12. 10 through 12, the years of your life are 70 or even by reason the strength of 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. They fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, God, and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days. Why? The psalmist says, why should we, why should we number our days? Right? So that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We want to be wise, a wise person, someone who has wisdom in their heart and mind and life and priorities. They do. They look above and they look beyond. They look, they look above to our creator, even as we were reminded in Ecclesiastes 12.1, even in the days of your youth, look to God. And then we look beyond to things beyond death. Two questions. They're listed there in the order of service. What are the symptoms of short-sighted living? And then the other question is, what did the rich man learn after he died? What are the symptoms? What are the symptoms here of of a short-sighted living? It's twisting God's law. The Pharisees did this. They did it in two ways. They're boasting in their wealth and they're trashing marriage. Jesus jumps right in. He says, hey, I want to anticipate that you might think that I'm suggesting that the law of God doesn't matter. And he makes very clear in verse 17. No, nothing will pass of God's law. It's a, it's a reflection of his very character and his wisdom and what we ought to walk in. I'm not saying that the law doesn't matter. Here you, teachers, the Pharisees, experts in the law. The Pharisees professed to trust God. They professed to be, and they were, they indeed were, experts in that. In fact, if, if, if you were to know a, a Pharisee, maybe you know a modern day one, uh, they are people whose religious devotion, would, would their track record would go way beyond ours. 
But they also have a very long track record, and Jesus knows this and discerns their hearts, that they also are those who are very, con- are very concerned about the outward conformity of their lives and their moral performance. But it's very clear, as Jesus states here in verse 15, God knows their hearts. And that's what's important. God knows that their heart is not right and pure. Many of the Pharisees in that day were wealthy. It was a time that, you know, there was, there was, there was not so much a middle class. There was a lot of people living in an agrarian society in what we would measure to be poverty. At those times, they, would, they were very devoted to, uh, you know, biblical principles. And maybe that's, you know, in, in part what made them wealthy, right? It's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with taking biblical principles and, and economics and, and making uh, and, and promoting and producing wealth. But many lived and measured life by wealth and possessions. The same way that the unbelieving world did. And even, even today, there are many who are professed religious people who can make the very same mistake. With our lips, we could honor the Lord, but with our wealth, we could live in a way that is selfish and doesn't honor God. The Pharisees make the false assumption. It really translates into a prosperity gospel of sorts. If you're healthy and you're wealthy, then that must be a sign that you have God's favor. That you have his approval because you're just so obedient. And so the inverse is true. In their estimation, if something's wrong with you, if you're laying there like the illustration of Lazarus with his sores and poverty, well then you, you must be doing something wrong. There must, if, you have, if you have a disformity or you have poverty, something must be wrong. That's the reason that Jesus corrected them and others in John chapter 9. He makes very clear because they come forward in John chapter 9. Jesus is going to heal a man who's blind. And they say, hey, hey, Rabbi, was it his sin or his parents that caused him to be blind? And Jesus said, no, it's, it, it's not that. You, you, you have misunderstood. It's neither. They assume that if you're poor, you must be under the curse. You must be unclean. They should, they should avoid people like Lazarus here that Jesus is illustrating because he's unclean, he's cursed. Sometimes I think we do the same in a, in a way. We, we, we take the word of God. The word of God says in 2 Thessalonians that he who doesn't work should not eat. So I'm not giving any money to poor people because it's their fault. I, I think that the, 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 the picture of the panhandling beggar is always the, the impression that we have of poverty. There's lots of forms of struggle and poverty. And many of those people, some of those folks... We don't know their story. We don't know what is behind that. And we don't need to assume that they are unkept, unclean, ungodly. Especially when we look at the global church, even our brothers and sisters who are persecuted in other parts and other times in the life of the church, they have little, but they are godly and they are content. They have joy. Many of them that they would look down upon are lined up in verse 16, forcing their way, Jesus says in verse 16, into the kingdom, which is to say is all the people that you despise, Pharisees, you lovers of money and self-righteous as you may be, prostitutes and, and, and sinners and tax collectors, they understand their need. They're lined up. They understand the message of the kingdom, Jesus is saying. Here's another place where they are short-sighted, where they're not living in light of eternity 
and the kingdom, it's marriage. Verse 18, right? Now, by the way, you, you may read verse 18 and say, where did that come from? And what does that mean? And what about people who do get divorced? Listen, this is not Jesus' summary teaching on the ethics of divorce, marriage, and remarriage. Elsewhere, the writers of Scripture and Jesus himself speak to that with clarity. But that's not what he's taking up right here. He's referring specifically to how they handled marriage. The Pharisees were short-sighted with both wealth and marriage. They would say, sure, adultery is wrong. But as long as, you're, as, long as you pursue marriage, then it, it, it's, you know, it's okay. So I will give a divorce. Many of the Pharisees were known to divorce their wives, even on things as, as, as lame as how bad their cooking is. I, I like her over there. She sees, she's, she's prettier, and I can tell she's a better cook. And so I'm going to give you a certificate of divorce, and I'm going to marry her and make her mine. And that's okay. But Jesus is saying, you don't understand. You were already in your heart committing adultery because you were lusting and longing for after, after something that wasn't your own. You've twisted the law in these legal matters. Sadly, we still at times know that we, even, even, even in our culture, we say, oh, well, if you know, in marriage, we say, if you don't prosper me, if you don't keep me healthy and, and secure and make me happy, then I'm leaving. This is not working for my purposes. We have a very selfish a, a, approach to marriage. We say, as long as two people can come together and make each other happy, but th- there's no sacrifice. There's no commitment and love. There's just this, this selfish view of marriage. That's a tragedy. Now Jesus here is going to introduce to them a parable. Now sometimes we think, oh, a parable is taking hard things to understand and making them like concrete with a, you know, some illustration. That's not what a parable is. A parable oftentimes will take things and make them confusing. To frustrate many like the parables, to dump things, to take things and flip them on their head and say, oh, you think those people are out and these folks like you are in. And Jesus is saying, no, it's the other way around. Those who are outcast are actually, in your estimation, in my kingdom, are welcomed. Here's my next question. What did the rich man learn, Keyword here, after he died? Not before, after he died. If we read, and let me just read it again, verse 19 through 21. Who do you want to be? Are you ready? Here it is. There's a rich man who has... Is clothed in purple and fine linen, and who is feasting sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a was laid a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. Anyone? Lazarus? No, I didn't think so. But if we, of course, press in and understand the full picture and read on, we would like to be Lazarus. This is not, it's not insignificant, by the way, that Jesus includes these details, okay? It's not insignificant that Luke records that Jesus says these things. There is a deep, stark, extreme contrast that's being painted between these two men, their, their situation, their destiny. And even as Luke would have recorded, of course, this in the Greek, Jesus more than likely was actually speaking this parable to them in the common tongue of Hebrew, and Lazarus rendered in the Hebrew is Eliezer, which means 
him who is helped by God or God who is his helper. Either way, either way, one of the details here is that the rich man has no name and Lazarus does. He's rich. That's not the problem. We already discussed that, right? The problem is that he has this purple linen and he feasts sumptuously. I realize on the way here I'm wearing a purple tie. Uh, <laughs> I promise you, I, you know, I bought this on sale at TJ Maxx, okay? <laughs> uh, but in that day, it was very difficult to get purple. That's why only royalty wore it. it to, to, to acquire that dye, to have purple means... This guy's the problem isn't that he's, he's rich, is that he's a show-off. I mean, this guy is decked out, bling, bling to the max. I mean, he's got the nicest car, you know, the nicest clothes, and he wants everyone to know it. And he lives in a house so big that he actually has a gate outside. He wants to draw attention to himself. He had enough money to help out Lazarus and a thousand other guys. Who are there in contrast, not dressed in, in, in fine linen, but dressed in, in sores and struggling. The rich man doesn't know the heart of God and he doesn't have compassion. And now he's in hell. Now, let me just say this from the outset, just like when I said in verse 18, this is not a, 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 a you know, a. a comprehensive theology on marriage at all, this too, this parable is not meant to be for us some type of, you know, big explanation on the afterlife and heaven and hell. It's not the point. But it is meant to be a warning. I remember somewhere in my childhood, there was this big shift in the United States concerning smoking. Right? And... Uh, and when I was a kid, you know, you could get cigarettes. Um, we used to buy my grandpa like a whole carton of L&M cigarettes every Christmas, right? And a pack of underwear. And, uh, and, and I would sit with him in the den right in front of this ashtray that someone else got him for Christmas. And, uh, and there was this shift. You know, you could go to the mall and you could buy cigarettes out of a vending machine, right? Some of you are shaking your head. Some of you bought those out of that vending machine. I'm not going to say anything about myself. But... Um, all that to say, there's something that changed and they started doing this surgeon's general warning on the side of cigarettes, of, of the packet of cigarettes. And, uh, and funny enough, I was actually in a duty-free shop uh, overseas in February and I saw, it was bigger than the word Marlboro. It said, smoking kills. <laughs> like, wow, I mean, they don't have the surgeon general, I guess, in Turkey. So they just say, smoking kills. And uh, you get the message, right? I remember wanting my, da- I wanted my granddad later in life, you know, no- understanding the warning that I wanted him to quit smoking. And I heard about these tapes that you had a, a subliminal message playing in the background that would help people stop smoking. And I wanted him to listen to these subliminal messages. Here we are. We have the responsibility to gauge what we believe concerning a warning. It's either legitimate to, to discover whether it is worthy of me taking to heart and re-evaluating my priorities and my decisions based off of these teachings. Are you prepared for death? And so for the, for the man here, the rich man, what he did not learn in life, he now will learn in death. 
Years ago, a dear friend and mentor of mine, Oki Landers, I remember teaching on this parable. It was so memorable uh, that I could, I could describe many of the points. I didn't have all of them, so I called him up this week and I said, Brother Oki, please recount some of these applications of what the rich man learned after he died. So these six are not my own. Here they are. The first one is this. Death comes to all men. This is, this is straightforward. And it is straight from the text. Death comes to all. It doesn't matter whether you're rich. It doesn't matter whether you're poor. Everyone dies. We all die. James 4 says this concerning that. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Young people, this is the same for you. What is life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. It's like this morning. There was dew and then it was gone. The sun rose. Our life. Death comes to all. Here's the second thing that we see the rich man learned. That there is life after death. Lazarus is at Abraham's side, or sometimes we refer to it as Abraham's bosom. It's, it's a place, a temporary place that we describe that souls go before the day of resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth in paradise. There's also a conscious life. The poor man, excuse me, the rich man is in hell, in Hades, and he is conscious of this. There is life for him also after death. The third thing that we learn here, that he learned, that we learn, is that God does punish sin. Verse 23 says that there's torment. Verse 24, he describes it as anguish that he is experiencing. I mean, this is heavy. This is real. What matters, though, is our heart. And the, the psalmist, King David, writes this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The great literary scholar C.S. Lewis, who himself despised Christianity but was converted later in life while at Oxford, was told about a gravestone after he became a Christian. He was told about a, grave scroll, a gravestone inscription that read this. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. <laughs> Thank you. That was a joke. Yes. But what isn't a joke that does comment on this as C.S. Lewis said, in response to that, he says, but I, best, I bet he wishes it were so. The wages of sin is death. Sin, there's many ways to describe sin. Here's one of them. It's wanting the gifts, but not the gift giver. It's worshiping and clinging and craving the things of creation, but not the creator. Hell is the removal of all of God's gifts and graces. Some of the greatest gifts that we enjoy in life are love and friendship. T.S. Eliot said, hell is the agony of loneliness. He, he, he wrote of this. He said it's not a cocktail party. You may say, well, I might as well go to hell because, you know, that's where all my friends are. And it's going to be fun. You know, it's going to be a party. All my, you know, naughty friends will be there. I'll just hang with them. No, you won't. 
T.S. Eliot writes, hell is oneself. Hell is alone. The other figures are in, merely projections. There is nothing to escape and nothing to escape to. One is always alone. You are neither loved or loving. The fourth thing that the rich man learned after death is that his religion had introduced him to Abraham, but he did not know God. He cries out, you see there in verse 24, Father Abraham, he knows who to call out to. Same could be true for us though. He doesn't cry out to, he doesn't try, he doesn't cry out to God. He sees Abraham, cries out to Abraham. But the same could be true for us because you can know a lot about morality and religion and the forms of prayer. and You can know all of the spiritual songs and you can even memorize Bible verses and not know the living God. The fifth thing is that there are no second chances after death. The rich man doesn't cry out, could, could, we, could we have a do-over? Could we start? Could we go back to the beginning? He knows it's not possible. He just wants relief. And then when he realizes he won't get relief, he at least would like to have others be warned. And so verse 24, it just shows that his heart is not aligned with the things of God. Even further, this is one of the, rich, this is one of the things that the rich man didn't learn. And that was the heart of God. Because he says, please tell Lazarus to go and tell my five brothers. Why doesn't he say, go tell the whole of humanity about the torment and anguish here? He gets the gravity of his destiny, but he's still selfish. The sixth thing that he learns, that we learn is that if a person does not hear by God's word, he or she will not hear by any other means. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We, we sometimes think, well, yeah, well, you know, just like the rich man here. Yeah, but if, if someone were to come to them from the dead, then that, you know, you send Lazarus, you know, they'll repent then. No. That's not true. Verse 29, what does, Jesus, what does Abraham respond with? Jesus tells us, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let's read on verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Sometimes we think, oh, well, they'll be persuaded if they have an amazing, moving, emotional experience. If something just so supernatural comes into their life, then they'll love God and follow him. No. We have God's word. It's being proclaimed. The message of the kingdom. Who are we in the parable? We're the five brothers because they're still alive and you're still alive. For today. Religion will not save us. And material wealth, just as a reminder, 
is not a sign of God's approval for you and for me. Generosity is a sign of God's grace working in our life. What matters is not our money, our spiritual progress, nor does how much we give to the poor, those who are in need, or how much we give to the church or ministry, or how outwardly we behave and obey. What matters is what resides in our heart. This is a parable with two people and two prayers and two destinies. There's two ways to deal with sin also, I should note. Either we can pay for our sins or Christ can. Jesus, my friends, here's the good news. Jesus took hell so that we, if we trust in him through repentance and faith, could enjoy heaven. Remember what he said, because he said, he warned him, Abraham said, they don't believe Moses and the prophets, which is the summation of the, old, the Hebrew Bible in, in, in many ways. We know that because later on the road to Emmaus, when there's men walking with the resurrected Jesus and don't recognize who he is, Jesus turns to them and it says this in Luke 24, verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is not necessary? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All of scripture is pointing to the king, the Messiah, the God man, Jesus. Jesus, to remind us all, became poor to cleanse us that we might enjoy new life, new heart, new home, new hope, new security, a new inheritance that can neither spoil or fade, cannot be taken away from us. 1 Corinthians 2.9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined is what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus has died. Let me back up. Jesus entered the world. Jesus obeyed the law. Jesus died. Jesus was raised. Jesus has ascended. Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is coming back. Jesus has gone in his ascension to prepare a place for us. He's coming back to welcome his children into a sweet rest that our precious sister Emily is enjoying now. Friends, we, we have been warned. Let us prepare. Let us live life in light of eternity. Let's look above and let's look beyond. Pray with me, please. Lord God Almighty, send us your spirit, please, this day. This week, whatever meets us, whatever lies ahead of us in our path, would you please forgive us for the ways that we love stuff? I know it. It's the strange joy I feel when I buy things and get things. Please, Lord, help us to be mindful that you owe, you own everything. You are a reward. You are the goodness. Lord, I pray for various people, even in our own midst, our own community, who are facing trouble and trying times, whether it's their health, 
their marriage, conflict that they're having with their family, challenges with parenting. Lord, we remember uh, the Leightons as they grieve, as we grieve with them. Comfort us, Lord, please. Lord, we're troubled that we live, we turn on the news and there's just violence. Especially, we remember this week, families impacted by such violence. We remember those who grieve and mourn with deep sorrow because their children, their loved ones have been murdered. Please meet them. Comfort them. Lord, would you please restrain evil in our country? We, we can be so deceived. Our country is so deceived that they slaughter unborn children. This is not the way it is supposed to be. Lord, please be merciful. Would you cultivate in, in our own midst, our own community, our own culture a fear of you? Because we're so saddened by the fact that many people live, that we have lived at times without your mercy in selfish, destructive ways because we didn't know you and we didn't fear you. Forgive us, Lord, of our sinful, shallow, self-serving ways. Would you give us a heart that's like Jesus, who has compassion and mercy for the poor, for the outcast, for the vulnerable, for the lonely? Lord, we're mindful today that we, and we're grateful this day that we live in a country that is seeking liberty and justice for everyone. And we are so grateful for people who have fought, especially today. We remember those who have died this weekend for our country. We lift up today families that look back with grief, some at a distant Some in more recent ways, they've lost loved ones who have served in the military. Have mercy. Please accompany, Lord, this, your people that I love, with the power of your spirit, that we might fulfill our mission and trust in your great faithfulness, not not for seasons, but for generations. Teach us to pray and help us. Teach the young ones in our church to do the same. Even now as we pray, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 